Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. In fact, there's a war going on for your soul right now. There is spiritual warfare that occurs it is real, uh, whether it's through the physical realm or, or kind of a, uh, a spiritual realm, that it's, there's, there's a war going on that is being fought. We don't even always realize, right? And, and this, this war causes collision and it causes um, tension. Uh, the best way to describe it, I think embody it, is uh, one of my favorite theologians, his name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you've heard of him, but um, he's, pretty, he's been pretty popular over the past few decades. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German. He was like... I mean, he was way above even the valedictorian. Like, he got his PhD at, like, 19. I mean, just brilliant. His family was just stacked. I don't know. They got all, they got all the magic from God when he created them. But, you know, have you seen that meme? We're like, oh, a little too much of that. Like, they all got it because they were all brilliant. And, uh, and so he's, he, he actually comes to America. He starts to study in America. It's funny. He makes fun of the, the American school system. This is, like, in the 30s and 40s. But, uh, and how, like, lame it was and not, not rigorous, as was the German schools. And... Uh, he's there with some, some people, and, and this is the time when the Nazi regime starts to rise. The Third Reich starts to rise and, and gain power. And, and he's in America, and he has to make this decision. Like, do I go back home? Do I put my life at risk? Um, because I know what's going on I don't believe in. I don't believe in the Christian kind of agenda of the Nazi regime and how they try to blend the church and, and what Hitler's had wanted. And so he decides to leave a life of safety. I mean, he could have lived in America. He could have taught in America. He could have written so many books. And he already he did write a lot of books, but he decides to go back to Germany, and what he does is fascinating. Uh, if I couldn't even imagine if you were in America, let's just say that for some reason Texas decided to just secede from the states, uh, and they were like, we're going to create our own state, and let's just say it went real bad, real south, crazy things started happening. They like they started. Uh, kind of doing what some of the Nazis did, and you felt like, man, like, do I go and do I go be a light in that community, or do we, do we kind of stay away from it? Do we attack it? Do what? What do we do? And so Bonhoeffer is in the middle of all of this, and it's funny. He writes a book, one of his um, probably best writings, but hardest one to read is his book on ethics. He tries to figure out, like, all right, everything's good and dandy until you're faced with a situation, and then what do you do, right? Everybody's like, yeah, no, I would never harm anyone until someone comes into your house and wants to hurt your family, and then, then the ethics go out the window. So he writes his book, and it's funny because he had to literally put his money where his mouth is. Like, I mean, he is in the midst of this. And so what he does is he creates an underground seminary uh, that, they, that we, we call Finkelwald, which is the location of this, this, this big house or estate that they, they stayed on. And they, they house probably a dozen or so. Uh, young Lutheran students, and they just lived out the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is our teaching we talked about over the last several weeks in the summer, and they just lived that out in the midst of just absolute Nazi German oppression, and it, and it was underground because it was obviously illegal. And there's this one moment where someone's visiting, and they had heard rumors about this. They thought, surely that there can't be that much light in this area of dark. Like, this can't be real. So this guy is skeptical. He comes and visits, and he's just blown away. He's blown away by the, the small light, beacon of light that, that Bonhoeffer communicated and created in this little area. And uh, Bonhoeffer at one point takes them out and they, they row down this river and they get off on this hillside and they overlook this, this um, bank. And, and in, the, in this bank is a Nazi uh, airstrip where 
constantly. It's like ants just running around like crazy, right? All these soldiers flying off to war and to go, you know, do bad things. And, and, and the guy remembers the conversation with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and was just talking about how serious Bonhoeffer's convictions were to be a light in the dark, to cast out um, sin and darkness, and, and to honestly be willing to sacrifice his life for it. Now, I don't know about you, I couldn't even imagine being within a mile of this like giant airstrip, and what you're doing is illegal, and you just are continuing in the light. What I also think is crazy is he was so academically accoladed that he could have just stayed in America and just coasted. I mean, literally, he was brilliant. And instead, he was hung at a concentration camp about three weeks before the Allies finally came in uh, and ended the war. And so we would consider him a martyr. In fact, there's a book written on him. You can read it uh, that considers him a martyr for the faith. And, and so I, I use him as, as this, this beautiful portrait of, of what it looks like, I think, for us to really think about our faith. Does it transcend the depths of the hardest things that we can imagine? Does it, does it transcend the depths of the things that we think, yeah, yeah, I would totally follow Jesus even if that happened, and then it happens. And so Jesus is one of those guys that live that. And so when Jesus comes and says, I have not come to bring peace to the earth, but I have come to bring a sword. What he's saying here is not that he has come to bring violence, but that violence will automatically come when his kingdom is, in, is uh, against the, the kingdom of the world. And we see this like countless times because we know that, that anyone who, who sees Jesus' kingdom for what it really is, is contrary and threatening to their own kingdom. I mean, think about it. Like this, Some of the statements that Jesus says are radical, right? Like he calls us, to love and to pray for our enemies. He calls us to right all wrongs in our life, to turn the other cheek, all these type of things that we've built security upon. Like, I am my own self. Like, I need to defend myself. I need to make a name for myself. I need to have influence and power and status. And all of those things are at the bottom of his kingdom. And so why would we not expect there to be tension and violence? And so what, what we think about here is that Jesus' kingdom is just indirect opposition to the world and its kingdoms. And, and it, it sounds funny, but like we probably like know that, but like think about the, the anger that is caused, even right now in America, from, from followers of Jesus and people who don't follow Jesus. I mean, just think about the, not only the miscommunication, the media, all that type of stuff. You can just throw that out right now. And when you sit down at Thanksgiving or maybe Christmas and you sit around people who are different than you and your family and you get into arguments, you realize, wow, there is a real, a real war going on in what we believe and what other people believe. And it's frustrating, right? Like, we would just love for Jesus just to, like, it just make all things easy and better for everyone. But the reality is, if that was the case, then Jesus would not be about what he says he's about. Jesus' first message when he came on earth, like, and he started his ministry was, repent, the kingdom is near. That message, it means, hey, what you're doing is wrong, turn away from it. It's not, hey, everything is great and everything you're doing is fine and don't worry about it. And so, his message, we have to realize, causes divisiveness. In fact, we, we learned that a few weeks ago as, as Jesus said, hey, when I send you guys out, there will be people who accept you and love what you have to say and choose to follow me. There will be people who want nothing to hear what you have to say. But it's, it's inevitable. In fact, it's happened to me. And that's the thing that we have to latch on to is that Jesus does not send us out alone, that he himself has suffered this. I mean, if you read the last few days of his life, he is in some of the most unfair trials and, and torture and suffering that he did not deserve. In fact, one of the hardest parts for me when I read that story is, like, I could not sit in a court and have people slander me knowing it's not true and remain silent. I don't know about you. Like, if you were in a court and they were saying all these things, you're like, 
I would, that's not true. Like, that didn't happen, you know. I want to make sure people know the story, right? That didn't happen. I have people to prove it. All these witnesses weren't, you know, they have false witnesses come up and say lies. They weren't even there, you know. And, and he, he, he just humbles himself to that whole experience. I think we forget that Jesus himself has faced the opposition, if not more, more than anyone. And, and he calls us to do the same. But at the end of the day, we ask ourselves, what, do we really trust that, right? And that's the question I kind of want you to wrestle with today, is do we really trust that, that everything that of us given to Jesus, do we actually trust that that is the way to go, that that is the life that we want to live? And, and in verse 35, it gets, it gets personal. Are you ready? People don't like this verse. It stresses us out. In verse 35, it says, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. People, people don't like talking about family, right? Family is like, that's our people, right? Some of you maybe haven't had the greatest families, so maybe that's not the case for you, but for a lot of us, maybe, like, family is it. Like, they're our priority. Maybe you have your own family. You have kids. You have a wife. Like, that's your thing. Maybe you, have an, you don't have any of that, but you have a family that, like, I'm with them all the time. They're my priority. If something's wrong, I drop whatever's going on. I, I'm with them. And so we get really nervous when we read this passage because we're like, okay, is that what Jesus is really saying? Like, like he's going to cause tension in my family? He's going to cause me to not like my father or vice versa? And, and, and what he's getting at here is really just, he's, he's kind of posing this, this, do you really believe what you say you believe? Are you really going to follow me? Because the disciples had experienced this. They, they had left family, and, and they probably thought they were crazy. I don't know about you, I'd probably think they were a little crazy too. And to go follow this mission, to, to, to pull, fully put their lives at stake for what Jesus says. And I think what's remarkable, and we don't always realize this, is this had been a reality. They knew that the Jewish people who had knew the Old Testament, they knew that this was going to happen. In fact, in Micah 7, this is a prophet, Micah, he says in verse 6, for a son thinks his father is a fool and a daughter challenges her mother and a daughter-in-law, her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are his own servants. Does that sound very similar to what Jesus is saying? Once again, Matthew being brilliant, let's just pull Micah and let's have Jesus quoting Micah. So they knew that there was going to be a, a tension in this. But what's, what, what's wild and what we, we often forget is that uh, in Mark 3, there's this story where Jesus is, is, is proclaiming the kingdom and his family comes and they're going to take him away. His own family thinks he's gone crazy. They're like, hey, like, you need to come home. This is what you're doing. It's not right. And, and, and he has to basically set boundaries on his own nuclear family. Now think about that, like if you know you go to college, you come back, and, and you really want to, I don't know, do a career, a certain career, and your entire family's like, no, 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 like don't do that, it's not good for you, no, 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 we're going to like make you do this. I mean, can you imagine how hard that would be? Like you've got to set a really severe boundary with the people who have raised and loved you. We forget Jesus had family, he had extended family, he was, he was grown up with these people, and here he is having to literally say, hey, like, I'm sorry, but this is more important. So even Jesus has experienced the weight of, of family boundaries and what it means to continue his mission. And praise God that he was faithful to that. But imagine, I mean, I just think about the security I'd have to have in Christ to be able to be like, hey, like, I'm sorry, guys, but this is, this is where God is calling me. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you can just abandon your marriage or your family because of it. But, but are you elevating anything over Jesus and his kingdom? What's more personal than family, right? I mean, honestly... There's not a lot. And so the sword that Jesus is talking about is not, 
It's not this sort of violence. It's not that he is bringing war, but that in his kingdom and in his life will inevitably bring dissonance and people will want to be at war. And so the sword is more so actually a metaphor for conflict and suffering. That in the midst of what Jesus is doing, there will be tension. And we've talked about this, in fact, when we first started as a church in our launch team, we talked about, um, we, we called it a series called Disruptive Discipleship. And it was how, if we're truly in the wave of, of, of following Jesus, that we are not the norm anymore. Like in the 60s, when everybody went to church on Sunday, things were, used to be closed on Sunday. Did you know that? Things used to be closed. Like you couldn't eat or you couldn't go to the grocery store. And now like Amazon will get you your package in four hours on Sunday at 10 p.m. And, uh, but, and people, everyone did it. It was like, oh, this is what we do. We go to church on Sunday. Now that it's not the case, we will experience hardship, dissonance uh, from people. But Jesus is, 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 is still the definition of peace. So it's weird. It's, it seems contradictory, and he's saying, I'm not coming to bring peace. He's not coming to bring peace in his kingdom, but his kingdom brings peace in itself. In fact, Jesus blesses the peacemakers in his teachings. And so uh, the best way to sum it up is this. It says, our mission to establish God's peaceful rule can be accomplished only by sharing his experience of conflict. I'll read that one more time. Our mission to establish God's peaceful role can be accomplished only by sharing his experience of conflict. Have you experienced a level of his conflict? Have you experienced loneliness for the sake of the kingdom? Have you experienced social ostracization? Have you experienced um, difficult boundaries to set with people because of the kingdom? Have you experienced... Uh, in my terms, just uncomfortable relationships where you're like, yeah, if I wasn't a Christian, like, I probably wouldn't be friends with these people or I wouldn't try so hard to love them. I would just stay away from them because I don't like them. You know, like, you ever have those people? Yeah, you know, yeah. You're like, yeah, amen, Trey. That's my, like, that's my spiritual journey every day. It's like to love those people. Verse 37 says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What Jesus is getting at here, and I think what I, the question I want to ask and the question that's being posed in this passage is, what is Jesus demanding of us? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What is he demanding of us? And this first one is, he's demanding a loyalty from his followers, which transcends even the closest of family ties. Which is just, like, don't, don't raise your hand in acceptance of that yet. Like, think about that, you know? Reflect on that. That is... Bold. In fact, one commentator I was reading uses the modern uh, idiom, having what it takes. Have you ever heard that? Like, oh, they have what it takes. He's like, this is, this is, this is kind of, essence, in essence, what it means to be, Jesus says, be worthy, is your willingness, your heart, your will to follow Jesus is, is so willing that you have what it takes. And this is not based on, like, what you do, right? Have what it takes, meaning, oh, I can just burn myself doing all these things, but that my heart is willing to lay aside the very things that I said I would, that I knew when I followed Jesus. In fact, uh, there was this one um, great evangelist who would, would, would preach gospel at different, you know, churches and things. Back when that was, like, the cool thing, they'd go all around, right, and, like, put up a big tent, have a big show, and then come out and preach the gospel, and all these people come to Jesus. Well, a lot of times, people who do that, you know, they get excited about the numbers, right? They want hand raises or whatever. And he would say, I would preach the gospel, and I would preach only the gospel, and at the end, when people were going to raise their hands, I would try to talk them out of it. And they were like, why would you do that? And he's like, because I really want them to know what they're signing up for. There's a loyalty 
that is, it ex- extends past even the closest of relationships because it is our priority and our utmost relationship. Then the next one, which I think is probably the most provocative statement that we can read in Jesus' words, verse 38, And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Jesus is, is, is not only demanding that his relationship with us, that his union trumps anything, any relational tie, but really anything on earth. Now, we've kind of like, I mean, we talk about the cross a lot, right? People wear crosses. We, we've kind of sanitized the reality of it. Uh, it's probably, it feels very, very foreign for us to think about a modern crucifixion. Like, that would not happen. That's not a part of our laws in America. Um, but at the, this time, I mean, man, crucifixion was not only a phys- painfully physical death, it was a social death as well. If you had someone in your family who was crucified, I mean, you might as well leave town. And, and especially, and I was reading a scholar who kind of studied the first century Roman tortures, which is what a, what a subject, um, was that it was, it was regarded by, by Jews as the most horrendous way to die. Uh, and it was only usually used in Roman Palestine for execution for slaves and political rebels. So this was essentially the worst way, and for the worst people, in fact, the guy who was at Jesus, uh, the die with him were political rebels. And so the, the commentator says it was thus not only the most cruel form of execution then in use, but it also carried the stigma of social disgrace when applied to a free person. To have a member of a family crucified was the ultimate shame. It was an inescapable pu- public fate and drew universal scorn and mockery. So when, when Jesus talks about carrying our cross, I mean, this is what he's talking about. And I know we're like, well, that will never happen to me, or I don't think it'll ever happen. I can't even fathom that happening or someone around me that happening too, but Jesus willingly engages with this reality and is asking us to do the same. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a pastor. I've been a Christian for uh, probably a decade, and, and I still read this, and I'm like, wow, I don't really know if I can honestly, like, like wow, that is hard. Like, when you really think about it, if you're really honest with yourself, if you really think about it, uh, you know, you, I, I, I'm like, that is a really hard scripture to follow. But, but Jesus wants nothing more, and the reason why he wants nothing more is because he is caring so deeply for us that the level we understand, like, the weight of this is always correlative to the weight of the understanding of Jesus' sacrifice. Like, he is not calling us into anything that he didn't first go and do and participate in. And, and some of the closest ways that we engage in relationship with Jesus is to engage in the same very sufferings that he suffered in. People who love Jesus that I know that love him the most have experienced hardship, have experienced trauma, have experienced pain beyond all imagine. And, and in that, their faith is that much bolder. And that's why I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer is such an inspiration, because he hadn't even experienced it. He had an out, right? People could have still praised him as a great Christian author and great theologian in America. But he knew, this is what I do. This is who we are. This is who I follow. And I will, will be willing to share in the same sufferings. And so for us, I don't know what that exactly looks like. For us, the cross seems very distant, it doesn't seem like a reality to us, but, but I would say even, even being willing to take up many crosses, whether it's the daily social ostracization or the discomfort in your life or, or reorienting the life that you're living right now to be more that of Jesus, that could be your cross in some ways, in small ways. And so the second thing Jesus demands of us is to take up our own cross, which is to sign away all rights to a quiet life of self-determination. 
I, uh, sometimes I, I sit around, uh, you know, fires and stuff and ask fun questions. And one time I was around a fire with some people and someone asked me the question, hey, if, if you weren't a Christian right now, what is a sin that you would want to indulge in? <laughs> what a question, right? Like, uh, is this church appropriate? Do we want to know Trey's answer? But I was thinking about it, and everyone's kind of just like, what? Like, what kind of question is that? I don't think about that on a daily basis, you know? What's the sin there? And, and, and we were kind of, we started to discuss the, kind of the, the psychological effects of your answer, right? Like, oh, if you said that, maybe that's on your mind. Maybe that's the sin you really want to participate in right now, you know? And so we're all, like, terrified to answer, right? We're like, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'd steal a pack of gum at the gas station, you know? And, uh, you know, nothing crazy, right? But, but it's like, it, it, we have to know, and it made me realize, like, we are choosing to live our lives different uh, in so many ways. Like, I'm, I'm choosing in my life, and I don't always want to do it, to be more generous than a lot of people. Like, I'm, I'm called to give, and I'm called to be generous to people. I'm called to give things that I, I'm a steward. I'm not an owner of anything. Everything is God's, and I steward it, which means I don't hold it tight. I don't, I don't create an idol out of it. Uh, I'm called to love people that I really don't want to love. Like, I don't have the option of just blocking people, right? Unless there's like, you know, they're really going to come at me. But <laughs> we don't have that option. Like, uh, I also don't, you know, I, ha- I don't have the ability to cheat on my taxes. Like, I don't do that. It's not what we do. I don't have the ability to be dishonest with people. I, I shouldn't lie to people. Like, these type of things. And what that does is it's tearing down my pursuit of my own, myself as God. It's pursuing and it's tearing down my own kingdom. And that is something that we have to be willing to, to sign up for. And what's wild about it is a lot of times, like for the illustration purpose, we're in our kingdom and we think, oh, yeah, I'm going to sign up for that. And it's only going to tear down like this little bit of my kingdom, right? You can kind of hide a little bit of your kingdom from God. Be like, well, this part, my sports memorabilia has to stay with me in my basement, you know? <laughs> like, I get it, but Ohio State, okay? Buckeyes. All right? If the games are ever on Sunday, I'm sorry, Lord. You know where I'll be, right? But, but it's like, but that is the reality. And I think when we choose to follow Jesus, we, we honestly, most of us, and myself included, had no idea what we signed up for. But as we walk daily and daily with Jesus, we create a deeper union to where we don't even care about those things anymore. The things that which we held so tightly are not a worry. They're not, they're not even an issue. And that's why there's this tension between Christians who are a little bit like Pharisees who are just constantly telling you, well, you should do that, and you shouldn't do this, and you need to do that, and you're like, shut up, I'm sick of you. You're a hypocrite, right? There's a difference between that tension and, wow, look at that person. I don't know how they do it, but I want to be more like that. Like, that they live in such a way where, I don't know what it is about so-and-so, but like, they just give stuff away. Like, they got, they got less than I do, and they just give it all away. They don't make near as much money as I do. I know that for sure, right? Like, they're a school teacher, and they're just giving it all away. Right? Or, or so-and-so is like busier than anyone I know. They have so many kids, but they're willing to come over and babysit for our kids. What in the world? Right? That's the type of stuff that is contagious. In fact, I've recently had a relationship in my life over the last few months where that has happened, and I'm just like, I'm like, why is this guy loving me so much? Like, I don't know what to do about it. And then, sure enough, like a couple weeks later, I'm like, man, I need to do that. Like, and he never, like, told me I need to do this, I need to do that. He never, like, oh, you're, well, you watch that show. You, do that. you know, like, it was just... A completely different, compelling way to live life that, that, that made me realize that my way to following Jesus is, is, needs to be better. And it wasn't out of like a, a, a guilt. It wasn't out of shame. It was out of love. It was out of watching that person like truly live into what they knew they believed. And it's the most powerful thing. You have no idea what you being generous, what you giving up your time, what you even just communicating a posture of stewardship, of love, 
will do to other people. And so Jesus is saying here, like, this is what will be the dissonance because people will get really scared when they see you being generous or see you loving their enemy and they don't want to. Like, think about how, how many people in the world right now have, 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 have blocked their enemies, have created, probably slandered and created this, they villainized them so that they can feel better about not being around them. And then you come in and you say, hey, actually, you have to love that person. Imagine the reaction of that, right? Imagine the security that you'd have to have to be able to say, yeah, actually, I think you're right. I think it's less about me and it's more about them. That causes violence. It causes an attack towards the teaching of Jesus. So if we expect Jesus' teaching, it is, it is beautiful and it is compelling and it is the hope of the world, but if we don't expect it to rub against the sin of the world and the flesh of the world, we are missing it. And he's saying, look, even your families, I don't know about you, like when you went to Thanksgiving dinner or maybe Christmas dinner, like our families are great and I love them, but we are all sinners around when we sit around that table. We all have terrible ideas and we read weird websites where we pull data and you're like, I don't know where that website is. You know, and you're like, yeah, that's not a .org or a .edu, so I don't know. <laughs> you know, we all, we just, we have our sin. And, and we have to be willing to realize the only person who doesn't is Jesus, and he's the one that we follow. And so I think about this, I think about what, what, is it, what, what does this look like tangibly for us as we walk out here, right? There's not like, hey, I'm not saying go do these three things. Like, don't, go give money away, go to your neighbor, go love them, go unblock the person on Facebook. I'm not saying that, but... Like, think about even this holiday season, right? We didn't do a Christmas series. Some of you are really, maybe really sad. We will talk about Jesus on Christmas. So and we will sing Christmas songs. So if you've been missing that. Um, but in this season, like, we, we celebrate the, the, the birth of Jesus, right? Who, who was born basically outside in the cold, in a manger, with no family, no hospital, no doula, nothing, right? And then, well, how do we celebrate that? around a warm, cozy house with a bunch of gifts and presents and our family, typically. Like, it's funny. It's like, oh, yeah, geez, we want to celebrate this reality by having a completely different, opposite experience. Now, I'm not saying you sit outside on Christmas Day, but, but like, we have to realize, what is this really about here? Like, what is Christmas about? What is our lives? Is it about ourselves? Is it about the gifts? Is it about even the family necessary? Or is it about reminding ourselves of the radical story where God of the universe decides to have his son born outside in a manger with no one around and no, no resources. Because that makes us realize, wow, if that's what we're following and that's what we choose to engage in, like, that's going to change our holiday season. So he tells them all this. He's telling the disciples this before they go off and they share the gospel. And then he ends with a little bit of a positive story here. This is the reward. What is the reward? Verse 40 he says, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Whoever receives a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives only a, cold, a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, I tell you the truth, he will never lose his reward. This is, this is like a good way to end an encouragement, right? She's just like, wow, I've been pretty hard on them. I should probably encourage them now. <laughs> um, what's the cost? Here's the reward. And, and Jesus here is saying, hey, like when you go out, there will be fruit. There will be wins that you'll see. And I think about that. Like our church is in an area where we've talked about it. It's, it's hard. Like we're not, uh, not going to be this massive mega church, and we never will be. And, uh, but we know that where we're called to be faithful to is an area that Jesus wants his light shown. And what that means is that there's going to be a lot of time where we – till the soil, like, um, and, and, and we don't see a lot of fruit. We don't see a lot of, like, harvest. And, and you can look at other fields and be like, look at their harvest, you know, and 
become jealous and all that. But, but there is such beauty in, in, in plowing and plowing and being faithful and getting to see glimpses of fruit. And we've already had glimpses of that. Since we opened our doors, we've had people just literally show up and be like, oh, like, you're here. Like, we, I want to come now. And we're like, wow, that was easy. Like, didn't even have to market you or anything. Didn't even have to be a Facebook ads. Wow. Okay, great. And there's, there's already been fruit like that where, like, we believe, like, what we're doing is making an impact. And we get to see that. And that's what drives us and excites us. And so he's saying, look, there's going to be people that accept this, that their lives are changed, that they find freedom. And that is the true reward. And that is what makes them, in, makes them see the weight of what I've done and being worthy of a disciple. And, and we think about the crowds and the people who are, who are pumped about this. And so as I close, I want, I want to read Micah 7, 6 again. And there's a few verses after it that I think give us our posture from this passage. It says, For a son thinks his father is a fool. A daughter challenges her mother, and a daughter-in-law, her mother-in-law, a man's enemy, are his own servants. But after that, the next verse says, But I will keep watching for the Lord. I will wait for the God, for God who delivers me. My God will hear my lament. My enemies do not gloat over me. Though I have fallen, I will get up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. I must endure the Lord's anger, for I have sinned against him, but then he will defend my cause and accomplish justice on my behalf. He will lead me out into the light, and I will experience firsthand his deliverance. Following Jesus is costly, and it's not just costly, it costs everything, but there is a reality of God bringing his justice on earth, and that he will give that to us. There's still sin. I love how Mike acknowledged it. Yeah, I've still sinned. God's angry about that. But I know the end result. I know his justice is bringing the light into my life and others. And I will rejoice in that. My enemies will not be able to gloat. So I want to close with this. I want to invite the band up as we transition into a time of reflection. And um, I'd like to close with uh, a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote. One of my favorite books, I, I give it to pretty much anyone who gets baptized at our church. Uh, it's called The Cost of Discipleship. How fitting, right? And uh, in that book, he has this quote, and I want to read it to you. He compares in the book what is called costly grace, costly discipleship, and what is called cheap discipleship or cheap grace. Cheap grace is uh, the apathetic consumer uh, person who maybe thinks they're a Christian but is very lukewarm, doesn't have any bit of understanding of what Jesus has done for them and what they do to others. Costly grace is us fully giving ourselves over to Jesus. And he says this, and I think this just gives us such an accurate depiction of what it looks like. He says, costly grace is the gospel, the good news, which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for and the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. He says it's costly because, we just talked about it, it costs a man his whole life. But it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. Remember what we talked about? Those who want their life will lose it. Those who lose their life will get it. Uh, lose their life will get it. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. He says, you were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up from us. Costly grace is the becoming flesh of God on earth.
as you take a moment to reflect in the process, we do a few things here at Contrast. We offer bread and cup, which is a part of communion, the last day Jesus was on earth, uh, as a symbol of what he's done for us. And so we have communion cups in the back of those two tables. You want to grab one. If you follow Jesus, that's a great time to do that. We also just encourage you to reflect on what's been happening. Take some time in silence, prayer. We have people in the back who would love to pray for you. They do it every week. If you need some prayer, we'd love to do that. We share that with our prayer team throughout the week. Um, but otherwise, we're going to give you about a minute or so just to take some time, reflect and process. And then we're going to sing uh, one last song as the band closes us. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.